What a blessing it is to hear once again from God's Word this morning. We are in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Passage will be up on the screen if you have a Bible. We encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. Our blue Bibles in the baskets in front of you, and the passage is on page 898. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 13, and this is Jesus speaking. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your mercy this morning, may your word confront us. May it disturb our security. May it undermine our complacency and overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior, and may we be encouraged in Christ Jesus. We pray all of this, Lord, desperately pleading for help by the power of the Spirit in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm currently in my third season as a t-ball manager each time coaching the Tigers, Roar, which happens to be my favorite animal. I have not lost a game in my managerial career, probably because we do this slow clap tiger cheer before each game that clearly intimidates the other teams, and probably because we don't keep score at the t-ball level, although of course I'm keeping score internally. We do try to make this experience very enjoyable for all of the four- to six-year-olds on the team, although each season I've noticed that some kids struggle to understand how something that's worthwhile can simultaneously be difficult at times. It would appear as though their parents tell them, I'm signing you up for t-ball, you will have so much fun, and yet when we get out there for practice and start doing drills and some running, and when some kids inevitably get hit with the ball, and when some kids desperately want to play first base, but someone else is already playing first base, some of them do start to question whether or not they're living well in the world. They're being told from someone in authority that they're engaged in a worthwhile activity, but then the baseball hurts when it hits you in the elbow, and tears are shed, even though there's no crying in baseball, they they don't know that yet. And it creates a lot of dissonance. However, as the kids begin to understand the mission, the dissonance begins to dissipate. Yes, the practices are challenging at times, but that's because the kids are being transformed into quality baseball players. And the big picture here is that we're becoming a baseball team that hopefully experiences great success on the field, success that would make a real tiger proud. Mission turns out to be 
critically important for understanding and especially enjoying the journey, which in the moment can indeed be very difficult. And that helps us continue to understand the upside-down nature of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus has so far taught us in the Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12, that faithful disciples are living well despite our difficult circumstances in suffering and despite the costs of sacrificially investing in the well-being of others in the flourishing of the world. We don't expect living well in suffering in sacrifice to show up in the same train of thought, but that is exactly what we get here from Jesus. We've already seen in previous weeks that our future inheritance, gaining the kingdom of heaven, that's something that helps us make sense of this apparent paradox, and it gives us real comfort even now. We know the redemptive story. We know where things are going, and so by God's grace, we can endure and even enjoy the process despite the very real difficulties. But that's not all. Our earthly mission, not just our future rewards, has something to say about this paradox as well. Which makes sense, because the redemptive story, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the the story that orients followers of Jesus isn't just about the future, It's about the now. It has something to say about who we are and what we're supposed to be about in this world in relation to who God is and what He is doing in the world right now. And as it turns out, that mission is far more robust than simply making it to heaven, grinning and bearing it along the way. Two questions this morning as we consider this extension, you might say, of the Beatitudes in verses 13 through 16. And my prayer is that the answers to these questions would help us better understand our purpose in the world right now and help us more fervently embrace the living well yet suffering paradox that Jesus holds out for us instead of becoming disillusioned. Two questions. Number one, what in the world are we doing What's our mission? And then number two, what should we expect along the way? What are we supposed to be doing out there? And then what should we expect? Let's start with that first question. What in the world are we doing? Well, Jesus tells us exactly what we're doing using two metaphors that have become famous even beyond the boundaries of Christendom. And that is, we're supposed to be salt and light. There are t-shirts with salt and light slogans. There are churches named after this. There are songs about this. There are, there are bad Christian puns about this that show up on car decals in beach communities. You've seen this before. But have you really seen this? Have you really looked into it? Let's take a closer look at salt in verse 13, keeping in mind that Jesus' primary audience is the disciples whom he has called and who are with him, and then additionally the crowds within earshot of Jesus while he was teaching on the mountain. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
Two things we see right away. Number one, Jesus is he's exhorting you plural, as in the community of his followers, not individuals. And then number two, it's possible for Jesus' followers to be off mission, to lose their saltiness. But what is this saltiness? What is it? Well, we're, we're not spicing up the world, as some have argued, or, or giving it flavored. That's what people like Shakira do. And that take tends to be the byproduct of a translation found in many English Bibles, including the version we use, that refers to salt losing its taste. But the better English translation, which is made very difficult because English can't fully capture the play on words that we find here in the Greek, the better English translation is something like, if salt is no longer behaving like salt, or if salt has lost its saltiness. The the taste translation leads us off course a bit. Another possibility is that the salt refers to the commonplace function of salt in Jewish society as a preservative. And there is some merit to this view, seeing as how Christians should have a morally preservative influence on this world as they live holy lives in accordance with God's command. But preservation language has some challenges too, because we're certainly looking to do more than simply preserve the status quo, which has been defiled by the expansive effects of sin. So purification language might be even more appropriate, purification being another common use for salt, overlapping with preservation, And Jesus uses salt language in this purifying sense in the book of Mark. And then finally, we're not done yet, finally in the Old Testament we find that covenant-making parties would sometimes eat salt together, symbolically representing salt's preservative function in making things last. And Robert Lethem makes a very compelling argument that Jesus is in fact using covenantal language here in verse 13. Maybe you should eat some salt next time you sign a lease with your landlord. So what do we do with all of this? What do we make of all of this? Well, well, zooming out a bit and then considering the parallel verse in verse 14, or the parallel phrase in verse 14, you are the light of the world. When we zoom out and look at that, it helps us move forward. Followers of Jesus, and this is really important, church, Followers of Jesus, both as they live and in the way that they live, are on a mission to bring Jesus to people. And we're specifically bringing people to Jesus who established a new covenant in his blood and inaugurated God's kingdom, the kingdom we become a part of when we repent and follow him. Our our saltiness aligns with the lifestyle already described for us in verses 6 through 9 by Jesus. Remember this hungering and thirsting for God to set things right in the world. Mercy and compassion, pureness in heart, peacemaking. It aligns with all of that, which will certainly have a morally preservative or purifying influence across the earth. And then the idea is... and. 1 Peter 2.12 comes to mind here, so I'll actually quote it. The idea is, 
that we keep our conduct among the Gentiles, that is, unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There is something about living holy, set-apart lives that helps unbelievers see the mercy and compassion of Jesus, so much so that some will apparently glorify God and become part of His kingdom. We'll say more about this later, but know for now that living well in this world is far far more spiritually consequential than we think it is, especially the supposedly ordinary faithfulness that doesn't make you insta-famous. Saltiness means seeing the beauty of the small things that are being missed these days on account of our cynicism and our constant thirsting for epic things. Salty people gravitate toward unglamorous acts of kindness and compassion, and they care about the outcomes, not who gets the credit. I've always thought that adult children singing hymns to their mom and the Alzheimer's unit of a nursing home are doing some of the most God-glorifying work there is, even if the total audience beyond your mom is three nursing home staffers who are overworked, and a little bit grumpy, and you know, you would be too if you spent all day looking at aqua floral wallpaper that hasn't been updated since the 80s. This stuff matters to God, and it makes such a difference in His spiritual economy. Please, please be encouraged. So we're salt, and we're the light of the world, a parallel image from Jesus, in a parallel verse which accentuates our role as heralds. The book of the prophet Isaiah has a very significant influence on the book of Matthew. References and allusions pop up everywhere in Matthew, including right here in verse 14. Isaiah chapter 42, which is a magnificent chapter, it, it speaks of a spirit-filled servant being given as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus came to this earth to be that spirit-filled servant, ultimately not just bringing, but becoming a new covenant on account of his broken body and shed blood. And in so doing, Jesus became a far better sacrifice than anything Israel could offer, an eternal sacrifice for the sake of the nation for the sake of the world. So Jesus came in fulfillment of this prophecy. And then along the way during his earthly ministry, Jesus tells his disciples, verse 14, that their participation in God's kingdom family involves being a light unto the whole world concerning their king. A light that's like a city on a hill or a mountain that therefore cannot be hidden. A light on a stand that gives light into all the house, because we all know, verse 15, that people don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. Shoot, my three kids know that. You know, hide it under a bush. And then what? Oh, no. 
I'm going to let it shine. We know this. Don't let Satan it out. And so we are heralds. Lights shining so boldly into the darkness for the sake of the world that people might see the greatness of Jesus. Ignatius likes to say that we're not bringing people ideas about Jesus. We're primarily showing people the greatness of Jesus. He's, he's so wonderful. He's so beautiful. Don't you want to follow him? Christians should be the most merciful, compassionate, peacemaking, justice-seeking people in the world, and we should be the boldest heralds in the world. Even when all of this, both the mercy-seeking and the compassion and, and the heralding, even when all of this is culturally uncomfortable, even when we're being reviled on account of Jesus, verse 11, even when we're facing persecution, verse 10, when we live counterculturally and start making noise about Jesus, of course we're going to get some blowback. Yes, from other people, but, but ultimately on account of the spiritual forces of evil, Ephesians chapter 6, that wage war against the light. Very important to remember that the people are not ultimately our enemies. The spiritual forces of evil are. The prophets of old. The OG salt and light, we might say. They encountered this kind of treatment in spades. Why would it be any different for us? This is quite the holistic mission, isn't it? It's a holistic mission in which we're bringing Jesus to people across the earth and around the world through mercy and compassion and pursuing justice and being peacemakers and being pure in heart, and heralding the gospel of the kingdom, repentance and all. You know, those of us who are interested maybe in, in social action, but a more private Christianity, better think again. That sounds like something is being hidden under the basket, and that's not what you do with a light. And those of us disinterested in mercy and compassion because, you know, Making noise about Jesus and repentance is what really matters because the present form of this world is passing away, something like that. They'd better think again, too. It all matters to Jesus, and it's all a part of our mission. Here's a concise way we might put this. Christians care. They care more than anyone when things are not as they should be which means we care when children don't have homes and families don't have enough food and we care when people near and far don't know about the greatness of Jesus. And we don't just care, we don't just make posts on social media and then pretend like we've done our part. We take action that, that costs us something. How is it that we can start caring about these things and accepting these costs? How does that happen? So what happens when you start walking with Jesus and abiding in his love? As Mike talked about last week in John chapter 15, be with Jesus and he will fill your cup to the brim. So much so that you'll start toddling around and spilling the cup all over the place. You'll start 
imaging the kind of ministry we see from Jesus and the Gospels. We can't just conjure this kind of energy and effort up. It, it comes from being with Jesus and abiding in His love. And as we do, we're living well. And we're living well in this world despite the costliness of this mission. Because it's a precious mission given to us by Jesus Himself. And accordingly, it's a mission that will surely bear fruit. You know, the Lord doesn't just send us out there to run around a little bit to do some personal calisthenics. He sends us out there because some things are going to go down. Because we're going to see some results on the field. Which brings us to our second question. And now we're about to get cooking here because I've got some really encouraging things to say to discourage people. Or really, Jesus says, I'm just the messenger. So here's that second question. What should we expect along the way? We've seen what it is that we're doing out there in the world, but what should we expect along the way? Look with me at verse 14, continuing through verse 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. And then what? Give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. So we expect people to revile us and persecute us and utter all kinds of evil against us on account of following Jesus. But also, some will see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And even more remarkably, some of the revilers themselves will eventually become believers and therefore God glorifiers. The Apostle Paul comes to mind here. Some people will see us living like Jesus, and they'll want in. They'll want to be a part of the kingdom. And then they'll repent of their sin, that is, doing things their way instead of God's way. And they'll start walking with Jesus and experiencing the same kind of transformation we're experiencing as we walk with Jesus. All made possible by the body and the blood of the Jesus they're following who came to establish a new covenant for the nations, binding for literally anyone who would turn toward Jesus, the Messiah, in faith. We let our light shine so that all of this will happen. Not so hopefully, so that all of this will happen. Church, are these our expectations? Do you really believe this? And I'm asking because so, so many Christians, I'd say especially in the West, are, are really discouraged right now. Some of you are discouraged. And I know this because I've had personal conversations about it with you in the past few weeks. You're discouraged about the spiritual darkness you're seeing in our city, in our country, in the world. You're discouraged because you see so much fraughtness and fragmentation affecting Christian denominations and churches and so forth. You're discouraged because you see some Christians living not-so-Christian lives and you wonder if you're missing something or if their misbehavior will undermine your efforts to be salt and light. You're discouraged because, statistically speaking, our country is becoming 
less and less theistic, and even those who do believe in transcendent things are gravitating toward all sorts of options that have nothing to do with Christianity or perhaps a corruption of Christianity. Some of you are so discouraged, and I get it. So here's your reality check. Are you ready? Some people will see our good works and give glory, essentially worship, to our Father who is in heaven. And instead of thinking too much about your individual works, I would love to invite you to think corporately about our works as the people of God. We talked earlier about those intentional you plurals from Jesus. And the pattern continues here in verse 16 as Jesus talks about your light and your good works. God works out his mission in this world primarily through his people, plural, specifically his church. So let's get out of our individual heads and realize that we're part of a much bigger picture. And God's doing all sorts of things that we don't even know about. So, I mean, if are you bummed out about the spiritual climate in the United States? Well, guess what? More Iranians, according to the statistics that I've seen recently, more Iranians have become Christians in the past 20 years than in, than in like the previous 1,300 combined. Well, here's something. Here's a story from the United States to remind you that God is still at work here, too. And I'm really going to press into this because this is a remarkable story. Casey Diaz was a shot caller for a notorious Los Angeles gang. <clears throat> In other words, he would determine which of his rivals would get harmed or killed. Eventually, he got arrested and he found himself in a solitary confinement cell in a maximum security prison. His only real opportunity to move about the prison was to attend a worship service when the announcement was made by volunteers visiting the prison to host the services. But he was so disinterested in Jesus that even that didn't appeal to him. He'd rather stay in his cell. But one day he heard an older woman say, Is there someone in that cell? Yes, ma'am. The guard said, but you don't want to deal with Diaz. You're wasting your time. Well, she answered, Jesus came for him, too. She approached the cell and said, and now I'll put this story into to his words. She approached the cell and said, young man, can I speak with you? Looking through the open slot in my gate, I couldn't see anything except for the guard's boots and a pair of spindly legs. How are you doing, she asked. I couldn't be better, came my sarcastic reply. Young man, she said, I'm going to pray for you, but there's something else I want to tell you. Jesus is going to use you. Young man, every time I'm here, I'm going to come by and remind you that Jesus is going to use you. A year or so later, I was lying down in my cell daydreaming when I turned toward the wall opposite my bed. On that wall, something strange was happening. A movie was playing, a movie about my life. I saw myself as a young child walking the old neighborhood at 9th and Kenmore. I witnessed incidents from my early days with the gang, everything in picture-perfect detail. 
Then I saw a bearded man with long hair carrying a cross. As he trudged along, a mob of angry people shouted at him. When he arrived on top of a knoll, rough-looking men nailed his hands and feet to the wooden beams and raised the cross so it stood between two other men on crosses. What got to me the most was when this man looked at me and said, Darwin, I'm doing this for you. I shuddered. Apart from the guards of my family, no one else knew my real name. Everyone called me Casey, my nickname, for as long as I could remember. Then I heard the sound of breath leaving him. At that moment, I knew he had died. That's when I hit the floor in the middle of the cell. I started weeping because I knew somehow that this was Almighty God, even though I didn't understand what he had done for me. After hitting the floor, I knew I had to get on my knees. I started confessing my sins. God, I'm sorry for stabbing so many people. God, I'm sorry I robbed so many families. With each new confession, I felt another weight come off my shoulders. When I finished, I knew something major had happened. I asked to see a chaplain who opened his Bible and explained who Jesus was and told me that what I had experienced in that cell was salvation. He handed me a Bible and urged me to start reading. I'd spend five or six hours reading that Bible, then fall asleep, wake up, and do some push-ups and calisthenics before picking up where I had left off. I didn't understand half of what I was reading, but that didn't bother me. That was the start of my journey of faith. Eventually, I was released from solitary confinement and returned to the mainline prison population where I was beaten for being a Christian and turning my back on my fellow gang members. But I was okay with that because I was no longer a shot caller. I had found a new calling, telling other inmates about Jesus. So Casey Diaz, we might say, had marked people for death, but Jesus marked him for life. Church, whenever you're feeling the why keep at it, everything is dark and terrible blues. Whenever you're feeling those blues, that's from Satan, not the Lord. Because the Lord says people are going to see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. People are going to see the unglamorous yet faithful labors of people like this prison volunteer God bless her, and respond. Or how about this statement from Jesus to his disciple Peter later in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. And Jesus says to Peter, listen, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. In other words, and this is important because this, this verse, I think, is actually often kind of mis interpreted, misunderstood, that the church of Jesus Christ is playing offense. We've got the ball, and when we charge the gates of hell, they won't be able to stop us. They'll give way, and the Lord, equipping and empowering us as His emissaries, will plunder hell itself, marking spiritually dead people for new life. So yes, City Church, we're living well despite 
the difficulties and sacrifices, despite the fact that we're living upside-down lives in an upside-down kingdom. Yes, it's worthwhile. Amen. And go Tigers.